Hey, let's turn our Bibles to Mark chapter uh, 8, the very last verse of chapter 8 into chapter 9, and looking up to verse 13. We're going to be speaking here about this event called the Transfiguration. It's something uh, that only three disciples got to experience, and for the most part, they were sleeping. <laughs> and, uh, but they did, they did catch a few moments of it. But we're told about it here in uh, Mark's Gospel as well as uh, Matthew and Luke. And verse 38, we'll pick it up here. For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God uh, present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, uh, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, and that is until the Son of Man, that is Christ, had risen from the dead. And so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Uh, then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. <clears throat> and they did to him whatever they wished, <clears throat> as it is written of him. Let's pray, guys. <clears throat> Father, we bless you. We are so thankful, Lord, to experience new life, the new life that we have in Christ. And I pray, Father, as we uh, examine closer uh, this portion of Scripture, that, Lord, you would speak, Lord, your truth. Lord, there's something about your word that's alive. And when we receive it by faith, Lord, it has a way of just energizing us. Lord, it has a way of encouraging us and helping us. Uh, and so, Father, I pray for those that are here this morning. I thank you. Thank you for each and every one. And Lord, uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would wonderfully be active. You've already been active, Lord, as we've been worshiping. Just sense your beauty, your presence, Lord, your person. And Lord, uh, we, we commit our heart and thoughts to you now and pray that, Father, your word would also, Lord, bring life and encouragement to us. Lord, where we are presently, you know our need, Lord. And we love you and we bless you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
But we come to this event called the Transfiguration. And it was a very unique kind of event. It didn't happen for everybody. Uh, as a matter of fact, it only happened for three of the disciples. And as we look at this event, it, it was something that was necessary uh, that they needed within their life. They, uh, Jesus has been speaking about the cross, about his death, about suffering. Uh, and of course, as we were sharing last week, uh, this part in the life of Christ and the disciples was a turning point. Uh, they're turning a corner here. Uh, they're moving toward the cross. And uh, it's been success. It's been Jesus walking on the water, feeding multitudes, healing people, raising the dead. And you can imagine if you were involved with Jesus you know, at that particular time, you would think, man, this is going to go on forever, and we are just going to march into Jerusalem and uh, take over the capital, throw off the yoke of Rome and all that. Uh, and the problem was that they, you know, they didn't understand the first advent, his first coming. Um, they, they looked at the second advent, him coming in victory and power and all that, and they wanted that because they were in a place of, you know, oppression and difficulty and that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and, but, but basically, they confuse those advents, and as a result, they end up you know, taking their Messiah, putting him on a cross, murdering him, putting him to death. Um, and all the while, he was, he was the one that was sent uh, to be their deliverer. You know, whenever Christ you know, steps into our life in any kind of way, he's the emancipator. Uh, he's the one that sets us free. Uh, he's the one that breaks the shackles, the addictions, and all the other things that can be so, you know, so powerful in our lives. I think sometimes it's those very things, you know, when we're, you know, when we're suffering defeat and struggle, those very things are the things that really bring us to Jesus because he has a wonderful way and only he alone can bring that, you know, that power to bear upon our life wherever it is that we need it uh, and set us free uh, in a wonderful and an awesome way. Now, again, they're on the road with Jesus. They're, they're moving toward the cross and he's teaching them. Uh, what he has to say with them is very important because he knows how discouraged and beat up they're going to be feeling, you know, at a later date, and that is after the crucifixion. Uh, the events are going to happen rather quickly, and so at this point, uh, you know, they're on a roll, uh, great success, lives, you know, thousands of people following them. It's going to get down to the point where the crowds are all going to diminish, uh, and even the 12 disciples are pretty much going to run and scatter at that particular point as Christ goes to the cross and he goes alone. And so this event here is really designed to encourage them, um, you know, just to, to speak into their life uh, something eternal. You know, we need to have that eternal perspective. I think a lot of times we're just sort of earth, earthbound, rather. We tend to get focused on all that's, you know, our circumstances and all those other things that are presently happening. And that's why the Holy Spirit, I think, oftentimes is giving that eternal perspective, this heavenly perspective. Uh, we become so earthbound. Uh, that we become fixated and focused upon this life, the circumstances, the struggles, and all those sorts of things. And we can get so tied up in that where we just basically begin to just live a, our Christianity in sort of a defeated kind of a way. But the fact of the matter is, you know, he has saved us. We are a heavenly people. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to continually give to us. That's why it's important we study the Bible we take time in prayer. We want to meet with the Lord. We want to spend time with him. We need that heavenly, uh, eternal perspective. Uh, otherwise, you know, you just get so focused on everything here and now uh, that, um, you know, begin to, you, you just begin to live like, like you did before. You begin to live like everybody around you. 
Now, some of the things that he was teaching them is, is back here uh, in chapter 8. I uh, just want to read a f- couple verses uh, for you. He says here uh, in uh, verse 34, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, we were talking about that last week. You know, you hear these expressions from people uh, about circumstances in their life. This is my cross. You know, this is something, you know, some heavy weight that I have to bear. Sometimes it might be another person. Uh, Sometimes it might be uh, certain circumstances in our life. But we find here that the scripture here, in a sense, defines for us really what it is. And the cross is simply this. It's the rejection and the reproach we bear for identifying with Jesus Christ. That's the cross. That's the cross alone. And that's why a lot of times it's very difficult for us to really speak. We feel the pressure. We know the rejection. Uh, what it may cost us, you know, if we really come, you know, we really, um, you know, are up front with Jesus. And, you know, I want to say this that we live in a day and an age when everything is coming out of the closet. And isn't it time for us, okay? It's time for the church to come out of the closet and let people know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Like we were singing there, you know. You know, our God saves. And you know, the world, even though they don't want to hear it, do you remember what your life was like before Jesus? Did you want to hear it? I didn't want to hear it. It's like, you know, I'm pushing back, you know. Uh, I, you know, I got enough Jesus, I, you know, because I, I, you know, I, I grew up uh, uh, Catholic, went to parochial schools and all that, and, you know, when I first heard the gospel, I, I, you know, I got enough Jesus, you know, leave me alone kind of a thing, and, and my wife was, just, you know, she went, she went bonkers when, you know, she heard the gospel, and, 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 and she influenced me. She, she influenced me tremendously because I saw a change take place in her life, and, and I, it was interesting, too, for me, because she's changing for this Jesus, uh, and there was areas, you know, that I wanted her to change, she wasn't changing, but she was changing for Jesus, and so I knew something, there was a reality here uh, to this whole, you know, this Christian message, the gospel, and so forth, and you know, people need to hear it, and there's something about your unique story, you know, sometimes, well, I don't know that much about the Bible, you know, I'm, um, I don't have any theological background, I'm not an evangelist. We got all these reasons and excuses, but you know what? You got your story. You got your particular story that God wants to use that. Uh, and it's amazing, you know, when you speak about the reality of your life and what Jesus did for you. It has power. It, it has power because people are, you know, people are empty. That's why people are just stuffing all kinds of stuff into their life, you know, looking for fulfillment, looking for satisfaction, looking for a goal, looking for a purpose. And, and, and really, the only true purpose and satisfaction that any of us are ever going to get is when we receive Christ into our life. So people are empty. People are so empty, and even though people will kind of push back, uh, you know, don't let that um, deter you. Um, people are empty. They need the Lord. And, uh, and as we, you and I speak the truth, God can take that, and even if it's only planting a seed. If it's only planting one seed of truth, God can use that. And he can, he can, at some later time, uh, you know, warm, you know, uh, 
rain on that seed and, and, and irrigate it and bring life out of it. I remember I was watching a National Geographic special many, many years ago called The Sands of the Namib, and it was the Namibia Desert in southwest, uh, yeah, southwest Africa. And they were talking about these seeds. And they said, you know, these seeds blow around the desert sometimes for 50 years. And, uh, and all of a sudden, they hit the rain and the, the spring rains, and they come to life. And, you know, the Word of God is like that. You know, it can be planted in someone's life, and they can be thinking about it. But all of a sudden, there comes that irrigation. You know, God waters it. And then someone comes along, you know, and harvests it. Um, so, again, each one of us may be a small part of what the Lord is doing as he reaches out, you know, through our life. And you simply tell your story as you share, in a sense, really what God has done with you. Man, there's power in that. There's a reality in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for each and every uh, one of us. <clears throat> Now, I think the Lord also, too, you know, uh, Matthew chapter 5 is what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And I think Jesus spoke of this uh, cross uh, when he said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, that doesn't, you know, sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Sounds like it doesn't make sense, you know. How can you be blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake? And, and it comes because, you know, we witness of him. We speak of him. And the world may be persecuting us, but at the same time, too, the Lord will bless you. The Lord will encourage your life and, and your witness. He goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we, you know, when we witness for Christ and we get persecuted or reproached, uh, hey, we stand in a long line of people that have been faithful to give their witness, and sometimes it can cost a person. You see that in the Bible. And, and you know, when you hear about the persecution that takes place around the world, you know, people lose their life uh, to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And, and most of us will never face that kind of persecution, um, you know, that kind of uh, danger. So it's important, you know, we have an opportunity, you know, to speak, you know, about our Lord, our Savior, and what he has done. It's a cross, but it's a wonderful cross, and there'll be a reward that follows. <clears throat> now here, in, uh, as we open up in chapter 9, what he's going to do because of what they're going to face and what he's going to go through, he's going to give them a little, that's what the, that's what the transfiguration is, he's going to give them a little glimpse of glory. Uh, he's going to give them a, a different perspective because they're going to be depressed. They're going to be discouraged. They're going to want to give up. At one point, they're going to think about, hey, let's go back to Galilee. Let's go back to our old trade. Let's go back to fishing. They're going to be so beat up you know, by the circumstances. They need this right now in their life and later on, it will, just like, you know, when sometimes, you know, you get up in the morning and you read your Bible, <clears throat> and you just, oh, that was great, you know, just, you know, great chapter kind of a thing, and you don't think a whole lot of it. But a couple of days later, all of a sudden, you go through some trial, and that truth of that chapter and that word comes back to you. It comes back to you to encourage you, uh, and that's why it's important that you, we need to keep availing ourselves, you know, to God's, because God's word's inspirational, and it's revelational. And it'll speak to our heart. It'll speak to our need. And sometimes you can just drop something in your heart. You don't need right now, but you're going to need it later. 
and this is in a sense what the transfiguration is. They're going to need this later, uh, even though they're not going to fully apprehend and understand, you know, what he's trying, what's happening uh, as they witness this, this incredible, miraculous moment. So he says here in verse 9, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here. The some standing here of all the disciples was Peter, James, and John. These were the three guys that the Lord selected uh, to experience that incredible, miraculous moment. You know, sometimes you wonder why, you know. Well, they were, they were kind of somewhat in leadership, but I, sometimes I think these guys were the remedial group. You know, they, the Jesus needed to keep them on a short leash, you know, so he kind of keeps them involved, you know, kind of closely. Uh, I've, I've kind of felt that about myself, quite frankly. That's why I'm in ministry. He's keeping me on a short leash. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd probably get in trouble. And uh, so, uh, so there's, there's, a, there's a method to, to it all. And he says, uh, <clears throat> there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So again, he's gonna, he's gonna, they're, they're going to experience a crucifixion, the darkness of that whole time. That their their master, you know, here it's a funny thing, you know. A week before the crucifixion, they're rolling into Jerusalem, called the Triumphal Entry, and people are, are throwing palm fronds down, and other people are quoting scriptures and that sort of thing. And the disciples are thinking, "Man, this is it, man! This is our moment that we've been waiting for this for three years." They finally recognize who he is, and within seven days, he's on a cross. So you can imagine just the shock. Of, of that whole experience and thinking, man, we were at the pinnacle, we were at the high point, we were ready to, you know, just to, to grab the baton, and all of a sudden, they're all scattered. Their master has been murdered, hung on a cross. They're going to need the encouragement of this moment. And again, he's gonna, they're going to see the kingdom in a sense. They're going to get a little glimpse, you know, into that. Um, you ever thought about that, about, you know, uh, having a vision, um, you know, looking into heaven, what it must be like. Paul said that he was there in the third heaven, which was a spiritual heaven. He had that experience, and he said there were things, man, I couldn't even talk about. They, they were so incredible, so awesome. But I'll tell you what, this life is a, is a primer. This life is just the beginning, guys. We have eternity to be with him. That's why, you know, it's important that we have another perspective. Because you can get so focused and fixated on the things of this life. Things aren't going right. You got problems. You got issues and all that sort of thing. And that stuff can really siphon your joy. It can really rob you. Uh, It can just sometimes move you to do things that you wouldn't normally do if you're in your spiritual mind. And so we need to have this. We need to have. That's why the Bible. That's why the Bible is we read it and we talk about it. It's always bringing before us another perspective. And that's why, you know, that's, you know uh, the, Paul speaks about it, that we have another mind, okay? Um, you know, we can have another way of thinking. And that's why when we read the Bible, the Bible says our, our thinking is renewed, and we need to have that. And, uh, and, of course, that takes place, you know, for us as we do come before the Scriptures in faith. Now, they, come, now six, they were told six days um, later, um, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to this high mountain apart. Um, we tend to think, uh, most of the scholars think that it's Mount Hermon. Have any of you, been, any of you guys been to Israel? Um, I would encourage you to go if, if you've not been there. Go at least once. Uh, I've been there seven, eight times, and, and uh, uh, it's, just, it's an awesome experience. Um, 
maybe just you know, just plan it and do it, um, and uh, God will wonderfully bless it. Uh, we were up in the Golan Heights, and this is uh, northern uh, Israel. Um, Golan Heights, on the average, are about 3,200 3, square feet, uh, 3,200 feet high on the average. Uh, but Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet, and when we go up to the goal, a certain part where we can't go any further in Israel, uh, you're standing on the, in the Golan Heights there, and you're looking up at Mount Hermon. And it's, again, it's a, um, it, it, the time that we go there, it's snow-capped. It's a snow-capped mountain. So uh, disciples, no doubt with Jesus, if that was the mountain, we're not exactly sure, uh, but it's a high mountain, and that's really the highest mountain in that particular area. Whether they went to the very top or not, we don't know. But uh, they were trekking all day. They're probably exhausted. They're probably tired. And that's why we find here the disciples actually are kind of sleeping at one particular point as this whole thing is sort of unfolding. But you know, when we sp as you speak about mountains, um, uh, there, there's an expression that's kind of kicked around in Christianity. Uh, and that is a mountaintop experience. And I don't know about you if you've ever had a mountaintop experience where you just, in a sense, you meet the Lord in a very wonderful, refreshing, intimate kind of a way. And he just kind of, man, his spirit just sort of washes over you. Uh, and there's like, it's, like a point, it's, like a, it's like a reboot. It's a spiritual reboot. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place of spiritual renewal. And I just want to say, I just want to interject this at this point. You know what? We need that. We need that. There, there are times where I just know I need to get away, and i got to get away from the house. If I don't get away from the house, I'm thinking about all this stuff that needs to be done. And so what I do, again, I grab my Bible, get my car, a little backpack and some water, uh, maybe a, a nature bar or something like that. I'll just go off in the woods. Or I'll go somewhere like the, you know, the, the, the lakefront, just where I can be alone, open my Bible, talk to the Lord, and just, you know, you know, we've got so much distraction, don't we, in our lives? You know, you can't even get away from the phone anymore. There was a day when the phone used to hang on the wall. Remember those days? And you came home and, you, you know, you tapped your messages and that sort of thing. I think, I mean, I think it was better that way. Now, I like my smartphone, okay? I like my smartphone because I could just, man, everything. You Google it, boom, it's right there. It's so convenient. But I think, you know, with that convenience comes a lot of distraction. And I think that, you know what, sometimes you just need to put all that stuff out of your life and to go to the mountain, to go to be with the Lord. So that's what retreats are about. But you don't need to wait to retreat. You know, you can just get alone. You know, you got some time. Uh, just get alone and spend that with Jesus. We need to have, we need to have those times where we just simply individually, intimately, we meet with him. Because what happens is, you know, when you meet with him, all of a sudden, you're drawing life from him. There's something about being in the presence of the Lord, isn't it? Isn't it beautiful? You know, when you, just, you, you know you got that moment, you know, with the Lord, and you're just, you're just drawing life, the life of Christ. You know, the Holy Spirit is just sort of, you know, ministering to you in a very dear and a very special kind of a way. Now, we're told uh, in verse, the end of verse 2 that he was transfigured bef before them. Uh, we, where we get the word sort of a metamorphosis is really kind of what it is. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. It says, his clothes became shining, exceeding white, like snow. And, uh, and what he's revealing here is this. He's revealing his eternal, glorious self. Remember Moses uh, in chapter 32, 33 of Exodus? 
you know, he's, he's having this exchange and this talk with God. And, um, and, he, and, and, and the Lord's saying, my presence is going to go with you. I'm going to bless you. And, and, and Moses, you know, speaks back to the Lord. He says, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with me, I don't want to go. And I imagine that Moses, who went up on the mountain, and remember, he met with God, you know, as the scripture says, as much as he could face to face. And, and as he came down from the mountain, his face was radiating. It, it was just shining because he was in the presence of God. But there comes a point a little bit later where he says to him, and I'll kind of read it to you real quickly in Exodus 33. <clears throat> he says, show me your glory. And I think if, you, you know, if we want to really meet, if we really want to get to know God, and, and a couple of things that he says here in the context of uh, Exodus 33, he says, first of all, show me your ways. Lord, Lord, show me who you are. Show me your ways. The way you handle things. Show me your person. And then he says, I want to, I want to know you. You know, if you've got that kind of a, a heart, God will meet with you. He desires, he desires, I think, you want to talk about prayer. He desires to answer prayer more than we desire to pray. I mean, he's ready. He's always ready and willing and able to meet with us. And he says, you know what? I need your presence, Lord. I need your presence in your life. And then he culminates with, Lord, show me your glory. And you know, if we got that kind of a, kind of a faith, that kind of a desire, man, I tell you what, God's going to bless you. God's going to meet with us. He, he longs to meet with us more than we desire to meet with him. And he's always beckoning us. He's, God is always saying, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, he's always saying, come to me. Because he's life. You know, everything that you and I need is in him. I know, I know we need material stuff and all that sort of thing, but isn't it God who provides that for us? But, but even more than, than, than money and material, man, we need him. We, we need him in our life. We, we need his, that dynamic, that, that power, you know, that power to, to love unlovable people, that power to forgive people. That, that power to see, to have hope for people. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? The world is always writing people off. And I love the people that God saves. Because you see, with the Lord, there's always hope. There, there's always hope. Because He's the source. He's the source of all blessings. He's the source of life. And when we come to Him, we partake of that. Now, in verse 4, suddenly with Jesus appear two great men of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And it says, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Why them? Why these two guys? Well, we don't know exactly. But together, they represent the entire Old Testament uh, scripture. They represent the law and the prophets. Um, you know, Moses, basically the lawgiver. But when we look at these guys, their whole life and ministry sets the stage to reveal who Jesus is. That's what the Old Testament is. 
Remember he said that, I think it's in Luke 24, verse 44. He, he said re regarding, uh, you know, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, they all speak of me. And that's why when you're reading the Bible, you can be reading some obscure passage in the Old Testament. I know, I know initially when I, when I began to read the Old Testament, I thought, ah, what does that mean? But it's amazing as I continue to read it, the, the revelation and to see, be able to see Jesus and to see that scripture pointing to Christ or pointing to what he would do. The whole Old Testament. And, and these two guys represented that revelation <clears throat> of the Old Testament that would, uh, that would come. The other thing, too, these, both of these guys previously met with the Lord on mountains. Moses, where? On Sinai, right? Uh, Elijah met with him on Horeb. And so uh, we don't know exactly if that's the reason, but we do know that these two particular guys met with him, uh, met with the Lord in a very special way. Um, and no doubt uh, it, probably has, uh, it probably has some future uh, implications uh, as well. <clears throat> so they're all talking, Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus, uh, Moses, um, and Elijah. They're talking here. And guess who interrupts the conversation? You got it, Peter. <laughs> he's, uh, he's Peter, you know. And uh, I, I, I can relate to Peter. There's, there's so many things in my own life. You know, you know, you do that, you read the Bible, and you can relate to somebody in the Bible. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can remember. And it's like even sometimes the bad guys, even some of the bad guys, the bad boys in the Bible, I can relate to them because of maybe some chapter of my life or some incident in my life. But the beautiful thing as you see God dealing with different personalities and different individuals in the Bible, that he is so gracious. And no matter who we are, no matter what baggage we have, when we meet him, he changes our history. He changes our history. I was just a street kid in Philadelphia when I grew up. And I can't tell you how many times I got in trouble. You know, it's like Job says, uh, man is, as sparks go upward, man is destined to trouble. <clears throat> and I used to get in trouble when I wasn't even looking for trouble. And I've often thought this, and I know it's true, that if Jesus Christ did not intervene in my life, I might be dead. I think that could be true of a lot of people. And it's his magnanimous grace. That's why when you see somebody, because again, the world writes a lot of people off. They marginalize them. No hope for that person. That's why a lot of people in prison come to Christ. My nephew is one of them. Second time in. Second time he was in prison for a few years. And second time in, he was in for bank robbery. Man, God got a hold of him, and, and every letter is about the Lord. And it's, it's not jailhouse religion. It's the real deal. And there's so many people that they're out there in our culture, in our society. They need Christ. And maybe the culture of the society has written them off. And that becomes, you know, the very person. Don't you love, the scripture tells us, who God chooses? 
He chooses the foolish things of the world. He chooses people that are despised. He chooses people that have no future, no career, or anything, and he steps into their life. And he says, you're mine. And he takes that person. He takes that life, and all of a sudden, that life has purpose, and they're, and they're, they're wonderfully useful. That's our God, our gracious God. Now, <clears throat> verse 5, <clears throat> Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Now, at that point, Peter, you're okay, okay? You're good at that point, Peter, but it's the other thing you say that um, is goofy. He says, it's good for us to be here, which it was, that Jesus brought him there. Um, let us make your three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, now Luke tells us, Luke's account of this tells us that Peter actually just woke up. And so he didn't know what to say, just kind of blurted this thing out. Um, and, and maybe, too, because of the moment, he's thinking, you know what, maybe we should make this world headquarters, Jesus' world headquarters. You know, sometimes, you know, when, when there's a special moment in a geographical place, you know in our humanity, you know what we do? Well, we're going to cordon off that place. It's the place, man. You see that with some of the Old Testament saints even. When God met them in a certain place, all of a sudden, wow, this special place. And folks, it's not the place, it's the person. It's the person of Jesus. And religious does that. religion does this all the time. Like when there's some special geographical location, all of a sudden, man, uh, they coordinate off and you have to spend money to get in there and uh, get so, you know, all this importance attached to it. It's not the place. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when we leave this building, it's just a building. You know, we, we call it the church, but it's really the church building. You know what? You are the church. We are the church. We are the, the church is a living organism. So that's why, you know, you <clears throat> church for hundreds of years met in houses. <laughs> and God, you know, that's why Jesus said, the church is wherever two or more are gathered. You know, I am there, you know, in the midst to encourage them. Now, here's the deal uh, in, in verse 5. Let us make here three tabernacles. Now, Peter's suggestion here is nonsense. Because what he's doing here, he's putting Moses and Elijah on a par with Jesus. And theologically, that's nuts. But that's where their understanding was. That's where their understanding was that Jesus was a great prophet. He was, you know, he was a great individual, a great healer, all those sorts of things. But that's why every time he would perform some incredible miracle like walking on the water, it's like, well, who is this man? Well, that's the problem. He's not just a man. He's the God-man. You know, Colossians tells us that, that Jesus Christ created the world. Now, now it's hard for us to, to, to kind of figure that out when we talk about the Trinity, because the Trinity is a real deal, okay? You've got three distinct persons in the Godhead. They're one. Remember, Jesus said that in his prayers, uh, excuse me, John 17. Uh, me and the Father were one, but yet there are three distinct purpose, uh, persons. And the thing is, it's very hard, I think, when it comes to theology and certain concepts like that, to get our brain around. But let me tell you this, you don't have to get your brain around it. 
Because you can be blessed out of your socks by just believing in the Trinity. And that's why the Scripture says, and I want to keep reminding you of this, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand. By faith we get the insight. By faith we get the revelation. See, the, the culture puts in a juxtaposition. They say this, if I can understand, then I'll believe. Okay? They reverse it. The Bible says by faith we understand, or through faith we will understand. And there's been many things I couldn't understand. Well, okay, the very first verse of the Bible, you've got to come to that in faith. Because what, is, what does it say? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, he already existed. In this finite realm, this infinite being already existed. Can you figure that out? No, you can't. You ever try to figure God out? It's like you get to a point, it's like, oh, my brain hurts. You know, I can't. <laughs> you know. But here's what I discovered also, too. When we, by faith, we understand that when we trust him, and believe him things that we can't figure all out, later on, later on, he'll give you insight. So many times later on, because we trusted him, we believed him, you know, against, you know, rationale and logic and all those sorts of things. And I'm not saying you don't use your brain. But remember what the proverb says, lean not to your own understanding, but in all our ways, what? Acknowledge him. Okay. Where are we here? Okay, I think we're in verse 7, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, well, verse 6, they're greatly afraid. Verse 7, <clears throat> the cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, as Peter continued to speak here, a, a heavenly voice, the Father himself, has to interrupt. I mean, God can't even get a word in edgewise. I've just been re we're reading uh, in Zechariah on Wednesday night. We're, we're doing a study on that prophet. And, and it, uh, it says in Zechariah, in Habakkuk, in um, Zephaniah, three of, the, three of the minor prophets, God says three times to the world. He says, you know, to all the earth, be quiet. He's saying to the world, hush up. Because there's so much going on that we can't hear him. And you know how easily we are distracted. And sometimes, you know, we don't really hear from God, but every, you know, <laughs> every couple of weeks or every month or maybe for some of us, every quarter, every six months, hey, we need to be hearing him on a regular basis. You know, there's a, uh, a voice here that comes <clears throat> from heaven, verse 7. And it happens three times in the New Testament. I don't know if you knew that. Um, three times there was verification, uh, validation, if you will, from heaven towards the ministry of Jesus from the Father. Remember his baptism, John chapter 3? You know, this is my beloved son. Okay, so that was the introduction of his ministry. Then we have here the second time this voice comes out of heaven. But why does it come out of heaven? It comes to, out of heaven to correct Peter 
from developing a wrong theology. Because he was putting Moses and Elijah on the same pedestal or on, par, on a par with Jesus. And there's no comparison whatsoever. So the voice now comes out of heaven to correct that error uh, that uh, could have been, you know, could have been easily propagated. Then thirdly, in John chapter 12, verse 28, there's another voice that comes out of heaven. And basically, at that point, it's signifying the conclusion of his earthly ministry. Because chapter 13, what do you get into? The Last Supper. Chapter 13 really begins his passion. So you have three times out of the Lord speaking out of heaven uh, to basically to, to validate uh, and to speak, um, you know, basically uh, relative to, to Jesus Christ of the Messiah. But I think the point here is simply this. God is saying, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Believe him. I like Psalm 2, and there it says, kiss the son. In other words, it means embrace him. Re receive him, embrace him, you know, into your life. I think that's the message that, in a sense, uh, in an indirect sense, that's a message, isn't it, that we have for the world to embrace the son. But it's important for us, if we're going to be able to tell people to kiss the son and embrace him, we have to be listening. We have to be listening ourselves, you know, to what God is saying to us. Now, <clears throat> verse 8, the vision is over. Um, and remember, Moses and Elijah were huge in the Israeli psyche. Uh, they measured everything, you know, by, they were always talking about the law of Moses. Um, and they had, they had, a, they had a, a great respect for for miracles, as a matter of fact, remember, they're always saying to Jesus, you know, give us a sign, let's perform a miracle. Uh, so these guys were very, they were embedded, you know, within the Israeli or the Jewish psyche. And uh, suddenly when they looked around, <clears throat> they saw no one anymore, only Jesus with themselves. And again, that, that, that's exactly the point. The Lord wanted them to see him in this kind of way, that he was much more important. He was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He fulfilled all those. And that's what we need to see. We need to see the importance of Jesus Christ. That he's so important that we need to tell people about him. When's the last time you handed a track out? When's the last time you handed a track out? When's the last time we had witnessed to somebody? It's important. God wants people to know him. And you and me are a living advertisement, so to speak, of God's handiwork. That's what makes it believable when they can hear our story and we can connect with them. Now he goes on to say <clears throat> they should tell no one, verse 9, they're, they're down from the mountain, um, you know, back to the everyday reality. So tell no one the things that you've seen. That is till the Son of Man, he, had risen from the, the dead. So the resurrection story 
you know, the cross without the re you know, resurrection story uh, is in it's incomplete. And he didn't want them going and telling people about, you know, they're depressed because he says, he's going to the cross. He's dead. He's dying. It's over. That's why the resurrection is so vital and so absolutely important in our message. That's why when we preach Christ, Christ is not on the cross. That's why we preach an empty cross. He's risen from the grave. Because if you have all you have a cross, if you have a cross without a resurrection, resurrection, all you have is a dead man, a dead Messiah. He's a dead Savior. Now we'll conclude here with these next few verses. And there's a question that they have relative to an Old Testament prophecy. The scribes uh, were teaching that before the day of the Lord, Elijah must come. Now you can see the connection there. They just had a vision. They just saw Elijah and Moses. So they're kind of wondering, you know, where are we here? You know, what exactly, what exactly took place? And, and again, it's never wrong to have questions. And I'll tell you, spiritually speaking, we always seem to have some kind of question. And the Lord will never put us off. And, uh, and I have prayed so many times over the last 40-some years as I've known him for insight and guidance. And man, he has come through every time. God's not afraid when, you answer him, when you're asking questions. <clears throat> and they asked him, verse 11, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now the reason, that's Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Um, I, can, I can read them to you very quickly here. This is what they're all concerned about because this is what Malachi said. And he was like the last guy right before the New, you know, he was 400 years before the New Testament. So he was kind of like the last prophet here. And so he's, he's telling us, hey, Elijah's coming before that great day. And in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet Malachi says, which is before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, and so forth. And what he's saying there, Elijah's ministry would be introducing um, the restoration that comes through Jesus Christ. That's why if you remember um, he says Elijah will come, but Elijah has already come. So what's he talking about here in these verses? Well, he's talking about John the Baptist's ministry, who preceded his ministry, okay? And this was a different day from the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the end time. It kicks off that seven-year period. Then it goes into the millennial reign. But the day right now that we're talking about, that we're living in, is the day of grace, And so Elijah's going to come, and we believe it's probably Revelation chapter 11, that somehow he is one of the great witnesses that will be murdered. We don't know who, we're not sure who the other one is. Some say it's Moses, some say it's Enoch, because Enoch and Elijah never, never experienced death. They were the only two guys uh, ever um, in, the, in the Bible who were translated. They were taken up alive. And so when Jesus says, Elijah will come, 
but he has come already. What does he mean here? Remember the angel who appeared before Zechariah, John the Baptist's father? And he said, you're going to have a son. And he's going to come in the power, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And of course, we see that. You know, we see that with, with John the Baptist. Very powerful. His message was incredibly powerful. And his message was basically introducing the messianic message and the, and the gospel and the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But yet there will be another time when it will either be Elijah or like John, another guy who can't, comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But, like, but looking at verse 12, Elijah is coming first to restore all things. You see, that's the ministry of Christ. He restores things. He repairs things. He rebuilds things. He renews things. And I'm going to ask you, before we pray, just stand. If you're praying, concerned about renewal, restoration, repair, because he's the God who does it. And we just want to lift it up to him. You want to pray about something like that? Let's do it. You don't have to stand up. But if there's something that's in your life right now, and you want to see God do a work, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're an awesome God. And Lord, uh, just reading that little piece in Malachi, it reminds us of how dysfunctional our nation is, families torn apart, lives that have been devastated, and there's such a great need. And Lord, we're thankful we look to you, and maybe, Father, we're standing here for ourselves or for somebody else, that you're the God that can reach out and whether it's to touch us or to touch that situation or to touch that loved one, we bring that before you now. We give it up to you, Lord. And Lord, we're thankful that you're the God who can make changes. Lord, just as, Lord, we not only read about it in Scripture, Lord, many of us here this morning have, have, have experienced new life. But also, Lord, we need power to move forward. You know our struggles. Father, you know our weakness. And Lord, we praise you for your great and awesome heart, for your incredible love that you desire, Lord. You desire us with all of our baggage, all of our background, all of our failures. We thank you, Lord, that you've chosen us. And I pray that, Father, as we open our hearts to you this morning, that you'd fill us, Lord. We need to be filled. This world's always trying to fill us. But we need the life and the power that comes from Christ and Christ alone. So, Lord, by faith, by faith we open up our hearts. And I pray, Father, you'd bless your people. You'd hear their hearts. You'd hear their cries. you answer their prayers. For, Father, we give you thanks and glory 
In Jesus' name, amen.